and welcome to Talking Home Renovations with the House Maven. That's me. I am your host, Catherine McPhail. I'm an architect working in eastern Massachusetts, and my specialty is additions and renovations to existing homes. I'm creating this podcast as a way for my clients to learn as much as they can about the different elements that are going to go into their home renovation. And I am happy to see that people all over the world are listening and hopefully getting something out of it as well. Our subject today is the psychology of space with Catherine Goldenoak, and you may remember her from episode five on lighting design. She is an interior designer here in Arlington, Massachusetts, and she is the owner of Spring Green Interior Design. Hi, Catherine. Welcome back to the show. Hi, how are you doing? I am doing surprisingly well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. It's a little bit of history. My undergrad degree was in clinical psychology. Um, and then I took a little bit of a career tangent into technology. And then I always, as a kid, wanted to be an interior designer. Uh, so I went back to school for that after um, some time doing other things. And the truth is that interior design and psychology are so incredibly linked. Um, mm. Some people were saying like, oh, this has nothing to do with your undergrad. And that's um, amazingly untrue. <laughs> we spend so much time in the built environment these days more than ever. And um, the built environment really, really does affect our psyche in so many different dimensions. So finding ways to create spaces that feel good, especially homes, I work mostly in residential design. Uh, when your home feels good, it is a delightful place to come home to. Uh, you can emotionally relax there. And when your home doesn't feel right, it can be like just a low level reason for agitation uh, and it doesn't feel good and relaxing to come home. And of course our home is our nest, so we want it to feel as good as possible. So I'm really passionate about making homes feel as good as possible. Um, and there's a lot of different visual and other sensory ways that we can make homes feel good as a psychological space. Okay. And try to think through how to break this all down because there's a lot of different directions we can come at it from. Um, I've created sort of three broad buckets, uh, which are our proprioceptive awareness of a space, our sensory perception of the space, and then our emotional relationship to the space around us. Uh, so kind of going with those three big buckets, I'll start with proprioceptive. So, um, I'm, I'm sorry, can you explain that word again? Because I this is the first day I've heard that word, even though sure, it's, it's how, like my job. how our bodies relate to space. Can, um, can you say it again? Is it proprioceptive? Proprioceptive. Proprioceptive. Mm -hmm. Pro so for example, uh, dancers and athletes have very good proprioceptive awareness of their own body mm. uh, because they have a lot of... Uh, I mean, awareness, they have a lot of training in terms of moving their body. So a dancer will be much more aware of how their body moves in space than your average person. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, the way our bodies relate to a space around us, whether it's a huge open space or a small cramped space, we have an awareness of how we, as a human of whatever shape and size we are, relate to that space in whatever shape and size it is. So mm -hmm. it's a proprioceptive awareness. Okay, good word to know. As my vocab teacher used to say in high school. <laughs> uh, so starting with that, then um, a space being in scale, um, there's both the scale of the space itself, like how big is the space, but also the relative proportion of the space. So the length of a room, width of a room, height of a room. If you imagine a room that's, for example, uh, very wide and long with a very low ceiling, <clears throat> you feel kind of like you're in a smushed hallway, right? Uh, versus a room that's maybe uh, a big box with a huge high ceiling and you feel kind of like, oh, there's this tube moving upward above you. You don't feel like you're in a small enclosed space. You feel like you're in this big open space. Hmm. So there's a lot of different ratios uh, depending on how the architecture is built. There's a lot of different ratios of shapes and sizes of rooms. 
um, I should start also with when I say people prefer, this is a very broad brush. So there are people in different cultures, there's people just with different backgrounds. So anything I say, there'll be somebody, somebody out there who disagrees with it. But when I say generally we prefer, um, humans generally prefer uh, a space that is what we call quote unquote human scale. So it's not tiny, it's not the playhouse in back that your kid might be playing in that feels too small. You feel as a grown up, you feel like, oh, you know, my head's gonna hit the ceiling. And it's not too big when you're in a huge space um, you know, with a triple height ceiling, um, you know, it looks beautiful in a hotel lobby to have a triple height ceiling, but if your living room is a triple height ceiling, you're not going to feel cozy and enclosed in that space. It's going to feel too big for your human size. Right. Um, also in terms of proportion, we tend to, uh, gravitate towards things that relate to the golden ratio. So mm. jumping into math for a minute, I don't know if you're familiar with the golden ratio. Oh, I am. That I have. Um, well, I mean, you're, you're an architect, of course, you're right. familiar with it. Um, so for your listeners, uh, it's, um, it relates to the Fibonacci sequence, which is a series of numbers that, you know, if you add one and two, you get three. And if you add two and three, you get five. If you add three and five, you get eight. If you add five and eight, you get 13. So between each one of those numbers, between one and two, two and three, three and five, uh, there's a relationship of about 1.6. What it is, as uh, in my understanding of it, is um, it's the most efficient way for um, elements in nature to arrange themselves. Mm. So you'll find uh, the golden ratio in things from um, the shape of DNA molecules to the shapes of human faces to um, Snail the arrangement shells. of sunflower seeds to the arrangement of pine cones. Yeah, it's amazing. Know, I mean, it's really, sea, really yeah, astounding. Seashells and snail shells um, all the way up to spiral galaxies, right? So yeah. from DNA up to spiral galaxies, you'll see this proportion over and over and over in nature. Wow, um, it's so crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really cool, actually. But we tend to, as natural beings, we tend to gravitate towards things that uh, go in that direction. Right. So if you see a house that has... Um, golden ratio windows, for example, that tends to be very pleasing to the eye. The Greeks are uh, sort of notorious for using the golden ratio in a lot of their architecture and a lot of their architecture still as classical architecture is something that we look to now as an inspiration of this is really beautifully scaled right. buildings. Yeah. Um, so it's not that every room has to be exactly golden ratio, but it tends to be comfortable and it tends to be that the further away from that that we stray, the less comfortable we tend to be. Hmm. Um, so that's sort of the shape of the box that's around us. Uh, in addition, in terms of our proprioceptive awareness of a space is um, a functional layout, right? So having foot traffic be able to move through without being impeded, not having a big object in the middle of a space as you're trying to get from one door to another. Um, and also having enough space that foot traffic doesn't break through a conversation area because mm. that tends to be just sort of emotionally, psychologically, spatially disruptive. It's right. really much preferable if you're sitting in a conversation group to have somebody walk past you rather than through you. Um, and there's also, again, from a very natural perspective, um, how safe a space feels. And this sort of throws back to our ancestors who had to escape from saber-toothed tigers. Um, and it's funny, different people relate to this in different ways. And I've had clients a number of times where one partner feels very strongly that this is the case and the other partner just doesn't quite understand. But uh, we evolved uh, to have a desire to have our back to a safe spot and to be able to see what's coming at us and to have an awareness of where our escapes are. And it sounds ridiculous. You don't have a saber-toothed tire coming into your bedroom, for example, right? right. But the way you're arranging that furniture, uh, you can arrange it in a way that feels like uh, you know, your head is to the door 
right? And that feels strange. Something could come in, a saber tooth tiger could come in and eat you at any moment. Mm. Um, so one of my clients calls this her mammal spot in her living room. She's got a <laughs> spot in the corner uh, where she can have her back to the wall and she can see the whole room and she can see both of the doors and it just feels comfortable to her. Uh, and her partner really like mercilessly mocked her for a long time. And I came in, I said, really, uh, this is called prospect refuge theory. It's something that's been researched. Um, animals, in addition to humans, other animals have this as well. Um, and I've taken my cat to the vet and he's in his little pet box. If there's a dog barking behind him, he wants to know where that dog is. He wants to be able to sort of see mm. that dog and feel protected from that dog, but he doesn't want it behind him without any ability to see it. So likewise, when we arrange our rooms in terms of having it be functional, we also want it to have it be psychologically comfortable the way it's arranged. Hmm. Um, so a classic example of that is like a chair with its back to the door. A lot of people end up with that in like public offices and they've got a cubicle and they have this big space to their back. And it tends to feel uncomfortable. Um, yeah. My husband totally feels that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's um, definitely like that. I, I can see it, but I don't, I don't feel it as strongly. You know, and I joke sometimes I have an older brother, so I feel it very strongly. Uh, and <laughs> I get along really well with my brother, but I do joke sometimes that I think sometimes younger siblings might have more of this sense mm. because <laughs> they may have been snuck up on from behind as children. That is true. Whereas it's That's entirely true. possible that older siblings have the same thing. That is, because I'm the so. oldest, so maybe I feel like, yeah, it doesn't bother me that much. Right. Check your siblings, see how they feel about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's the big bucket for proprioceptive awareness. Um, hmm. Second big bucket that I have here is sensory awareness. Um, so this has a lot of different components in terms of how we experience a space when we're in it. So I know we talked the last time I was on your show about light, and there's a lot of different qualities of light that are important in a space. So uh, whether it's well lit enough is one. If it's sort of dim and dingy, it tends not to feel very good. Um, The color of the light, whether it's a warm or a cool color, the color rendering of the light, whether it renders greens as greens and reds as reds, or whether everything looks kind of gray and washed out. Uh, the shape of the light, whether it's coming down in a direct beam or whether it's sort of a soft glow and a halo, uh, and how uh, how well the light is being used. Do you have enough ambient light? Do you have task light where you need to see it? If you're chopping vegetables in the kitchen, can you see your carrots? You know, mm-hmm. so uh, there's a lot of components of light, but light is definitely something that we sensorily experience in a space, um, and that's really important to be aware of. Uh, another element with sensory is materiality. So. Um, if you think of something that's very slick, right? Um, like a polished concrete floor versus uh, a soft textural wool rug under your feet, you have a very different experience of those two things. Mm. Um, and so the materiality in a room, sometimes um, I've seen homes I've gone into where somebody had built a hearth in a living room and put in a huge, beautiful, you know, field stone, but it was cut, uh, cut field stone um, wall behind it. Mm-hmm. And it was actually very cold because it was this big granite wall uh, right. and it was supposed to feel cozy, but the effect because of the materiality was that it almost contradicted the coziness of the area with the stove. Um, so material is something very important to be aware of. Um, mixing textures tends to be something that we like. We tend to like to have a variety of textures. I think this also goes back to nature. If you go into the forest, you know, you see a whole lot of different textures of bark and leaf and, you know, things on the ground. Um, and I think that's more interesting to us as humans than just being in a, um, I don't know, like a brutalist building where everything is concrete. There's not very much for your eye mm-hmm. to see, 
And I think we tend to prefer having more uh, variation in the textures that are around us. Um, materiality also can contribute to how we perceive sound in the space. So again, if we go back to that floor of like a polished concrete floor versus a softer rug on the floor, uh, materials that are soft tend to absorb sound and materials that are hard and smooth tend to bounce sound mm. around. So if you're in a space that has a lot of wood and glass and stone and doesn't have a lot of fabrics uh, or leathers, you know, it doesn't have a lot of soft things in it, it tends to be echoey. Even if it's a smaller space, it tends to bounce that sound around, which isn't usually very comfortable for people. Going back to other sensory perceptions in a space, um, color is obviously, sorry, that's the elephant in a room you're talking to a designer, right? right? Um, and color, like light, has so many different components to it. So there's the hue of what the color is. Are we talking red? Are we talking green? There's saturation. Is it like a really, really vibrant green or is it a very washed out sort of light seafoamy color? Um, and values, you know, value or brightness is how light or dark it is, um, how much black is mm. in there. Um, and so given that, uh, we all sort of learned the color wheel as kids, <laughs> it's like very two-dimensional, but color is really like a three-dimensional um, pie, right? So there's a lot, of, a lot of options in a lot of different directions. And every point in that color pie uh, of where you are in hue, where you are in saturation, and where you are in um, brightness or value really can affect the way you perceive a room a lot. I mean, there's whole books and uh, dissertations on how individual colors can affect our environment. Yeah. Um, uh, another component of sensory is um, the cohesion of style or lack of cohesion of style. And I tend to describe uh, design style as being like either flavors or like music. Um, so in flavors, there tend to be flavor constellations that work well together. There tend to be flavors that don't work mm. together. Um, and creating a successful thing to eat, whether um, it's a gourmet dish or an ice cream sundae, really the key is to find flavors that work well together and not to put in ones that don't work. Mm. So my, my standard when I'm talking to clients is ice cream, right? We're trying to build a couple an ice cream sundae that they both like. Uh, and they might have different preferences in terms of it. So they might like chocolate, they might like mint, they might like orange, they might like bubble mm. gum, um, they might like okay, the bubble gum. Um, bubble gum doesn't match in that. Right, right. But even, um, you know, if you put chocolate and mint and then you put chocolate and mm -hmm. coffee. Or chocolate and orange uh, even. Those, those can work. But if you put the mint on top of the coffee, it tends not to work no. as well. Um, especially, you know, if you put the bubble gum on top of the mint on top of yeah, the coffee. That and, just ruins the whole um, thing. Right, I think um, in design, a lot of people will buy individual pieces that they like. Uh, I really love this sofa. I really love this table. Um, and then they'll have elements in their room that they like for another reason. Oh, this was from Great Aunt Marge, you know? And so I love this, even if I wouldn't have bought it, I still mm. love it. And so you end up with a lot of different flavors happening in a room um, using the music metaphor. You know, you have notes that are harmonious and notes that aren't. And the more notes you pack in at a single time, the less likely it is that it's going to create a beautiful harmony. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to just have one note. Or if you're making an ice cream sundae, it can be a little boring to just have one flavor of ice cream. We really, design is a matter of finding components that work well together, whether, you know, it's flavors or notes uh, and creating something that works harmoniously together. Mm. Um, so when you go into a space, uh, really on a subliminal 
level, uh, you're aware of whether there's this cohesion of style. The same way if you walk into a space and you're hearing music in that space, you'd have sort of a subliminal awareness of like, oh, this is really dissonant or, oh, this is very uplifting. You know, you've got John Williams epic music, you know, we tend to respond certain ways to certain mm. inputs. Um, uh, and another sense, going back to the sensory, another sensory thing that we're aware of in a space is uh, the air quality. So this can go both from, uh, some people have uh, chemical sensitivities, mm -hmm. which a lot of building materials these days have a lot of chemicals that people are becoming sensitive to. So it can be something that maybe not even everybody smells, uh, but there can be a chemical that's in the air that some people are sensitive to that can cause headaches, it can cause breathing problems, it can cause a whole lot of problems. Um, so that's sort of an invisible unseen thing, but it's, it's real. So if there's people who say this building makes me sick, they're really not making it up. Like this building has an air quality that's invisible and we don't, at least currently in the US, um, we don't monitor a lot of these chemicals. They're not really documented and we don't have a, yes, this is definitely a bad chemical. It shouldn't be used. So um, I know I developed a small chemical sensitivity when I was working with wallpaper samples several years ago hmm. uh, and they had wallpaper paste on them. And I just had this one really overwhelming reaction where I got really nauseous and I got a headache and I got dizzy and I needed to put them away and open the window. But mm. ever since that day, uh, if I go into a dollar store that has cheap stuff in it, uh, there's a chemical in there that I can smell that my husband can't and a lot of my friends can't smell, but there's something in there that gives me that same headache. And I think I, I overloaded and I sensitized to it. Mm. So it's possible for people to develop these in adulthood. Uh, it's possible to get chemical sensitivities. So Interesting. Uh, it's something that's not really well understood, but it's definitely real and it's something worth uh, being aware of in yourself. If you're in a building and you're feeling not good and you go outside and it feels better, it's invisible. So it's hard. It's easy to say it's in your head, but it's real. You know, it's worth listening to if you're having that gut response, if there's something in this building that isn't good for me. Hmm. Um, another element um, is, you know, we have a lot of plants that can absorb those VOCs and, and chemicals that aren't good in the air. So sometimes you can offset an air quality issue by bringing in plants that can help clean the air. But there's also just a, a scent in the air. So whether there's a scent, sense of there is fresh air and there's air movement through here versus this is very stagnant air. Mm. Um, this is, you know, like a humid, dank basement. Um, oh, you had to or, bring that up. It, right. Well, I mean, a lot of people have humid, dank <laughs> I got, basements, right? I happen to be in one right now. Right. <laughs> Sorry. That's right. Um, or even, you know, cooking scents can either mm. be pleasant or unpleasant depending on the situation. Um, that's true. Even going door to door and dropping things off, going into people's vestibules or into their front hall, not into their actual apartment. But I mean, mm -hmm. each house has a different smell to it that maybe you don't yeah. notice in your own house. It really does. And yeah, we tend not to notice it in our own house unless we've been away for a couple of weeks. Then you come house, you come home and you'll be like, oh, that's interesting. You know, like I never noticed that the house smells this way. Yeah. Um, but scent is definitely an element in the air. So we've talked about uh, sort of a proprioceptive awareness of the space, how functional the space is. Um, we've talked about sensory awareness of the space. And then the third component that I want to just mention is an emotional relationship to our environment. So there's a lot of different components here. One of them is a degree of formality. Um, sometimes when I'm meeting clients for the first time, they're trying to articulate what it is that they want, but they don't have quite the words for what it is that they want. And so we'll talk about sometimes, how do you want this space to feel when you come into the room? How do you want to feel when you come home? How do you want people to feel when they come into the spaces if they're visiting? So there's a degree of how formal is this? Um, I think when we were talking earlier, I had said, you know, are we trying to create Versailles? Or are we trying to create a beach cottage? You know, are we trying to create something else in between? Um, because they're very, very different 
ways that we relate to those spaces. I mean, the way you emotionally relate to the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles is this is grand and I am small, you know, and there's this formality to it uh, mm. versus something that's is cozy and you can take off your shoes and kick up your feet and put them on the sofa and relax with a dog on top of you or something. There's very different moods in those different um, elements of style. Right. Uh, emotionally, the way we relate to space as well um, can be objects, right? So there can be objects that we have an emotional attachment to because they're heirlooms. Um, I have had a lot of clients who say like, I really don't like this piece of furniture, but I, I need to have this piece of furniture. Yeah. Um, and so finding ways to make that piece of furniture work without, uh, forcing them to create an entire, sometimes they'll feel as if, okay, I have great aunt Marge's dresser. My entire bedroom now needs to be coordinated with great aunt Marge's dresser, even though I don't like the dresser. Um, and so they feel sort of bound to it, which isn't necessary, but being aware of having an emotional attachment, um, is definitely worthwhile and say, okay, how can we use this? Um, are there creative alternate uses or other spaces? Um, sometimes we'll have an emotional attachment to something cause it's a memory of our own. You know, this is a souvenir. We bought this painting on our honeymoon. Right. Um, and there are items in our, all of our homes that are reflections of us, right? Our hobbies, what we like to do if people collect things. Um, I personally have, uh, in our basement, we have a library with you know, stacks and stacks of bookcases. And we also have a lot of board games. And I was having a party once um, and people were upstairs, people were on the first floor and we had the downstairs open if people wanted it. And I went down there just to check and see if anybody was down in the library. And we had one friend who's an introvert who had had too much of people. And mm. he was down there just sort of, delightedly sitting in a big comfy cozy chair in the library uh reading book uh and I said how you doing and he said I am surrounded by board games and books he's like I'm in heaven I'm fine I got over people you know but um it's one of the reasons we're friends right is that to him uh that space felt very comfortable in the same way that it feels comfortable with me but for people who don't particularly love books or board games it wouldn't necessarily be like well you know this room doesn't do it for me but I want a music studio you know mm, yeah um so people relate to different things. Um, there's also um, things that feel special, right? So they can feel special because of that emotional attachment. They can feel special because uh, it's not your exact run of the mill something or other. So um, finding a unique one of a kind piece in um, you know, a secondhand store that's been uh, refinished in a really creative way, for example, and I don't know if it's not everybody's style, but you, like, you see a chair that's been reupholstered in some really fun fabric. Mm -hmm. um, which is just like a little bit more interesting than having it be, you know, in this plain brown leather. Um, and it's not that everything in a room needs to be unique and interesting because then you can get into the cacophony. Mm -hmm. But if everything in the room is something that was purchased, you know, directly from a store and looks very generic, there's nothing exciting about the room. Here's like your generic beige couch and here's your generic rectangular coffee table and here's your, you know, generic rug on the floor. Um, I personally love coffee tables as an option for doing something fun because um, they're not very big. You can replace it if you get tired of it. But, you know, if you have a boring rectangular coffee table, there's this opportunity to put something really interesting in there. Uh, there's a lot of different variations on things you can do. Then you have a piece of art right in your conversation group there. And it's a useful functional piece of art that you're putting your coffee on. Um, but it can really just even one piece in a room can really change the way that feels emotionally from this is blah, this is boring, this is run of the mill to, oh, this is special. Um, so not everything needs to be perfect and custom, you know, like it doesn't have to be the whole room. Just having a little bit of touch of that can, can be helpful. Um, speaking of custom though, uh, how we emotionally re relate to a space, um, there are times when a custom piece of furniture is the answer. 
Uh, and sometimes people will shy away from that thinking that it's too expensive. And oftentimes it's really not much more expensive than buying something that's ready-made. Um, I've had custom dining tables made for a number of clients that really are in the same price point as a, a prefab dining table, but these are custom crafted in the wood and the style to the size that the clients want. And so it fits their space perfectly. And it feels good every time they go into that space because this table is beautiful and it was crafted specifically for the space and it's special because of that. Um, and it really is worth looking into custom options because oftentimes they're not as expensive as people fear. Um, I had a custom bed made for a client last year who um, had a couple of pictures of beds that she liked of headboards and bed frames and none of them was quite right. So um, I designed something that used the elements that she liked of these other different beds and headboards. And then we had that custom made. So it's custom upholstered headboard with a bed frame. Um, mm. And she loves it. It's, it's the centerpiece of their bedroom. Um, and so to her, that's where she goes at night to relax and fall asleep. To her, it was really worthwhile to have that custom piece that was just exactly what she wanted. Yeah. Um, so that can also make something feel special. Um, and then quality. Um, and this is, again, not to say that everything has to be very expensive because most people, <laughs> the 99%, don't have enough money to have a huge estate. Um, but you can tell with the materiality of something whether it's a good quality or not. And if everything in your space is cheap and feels cheap and looks cheap, you do sort of relate to it in that emotional way. And so uh, making something special, whether it's you know slightly modifying it or um, I don't know, having your friend help you with it if you're not a crafty person or um, upgrading one piece in your room to be a higher quality, um, gives it a sense of intentionality rather than, oh, this is just what I got. You know, mm. I got this generic sofa. You know, I inherited this coffee table from my cousin. Um, if it's not yours and it's not delighting you, um, consider whether it could be replaced with something that does make you happy. Because uh, people oftentimes live in you know, inherited or generic furniture, you know, into their 40s and 50s. And then it occurs to them like, hey, I don't need to use my cousin's coffee table anymore. I can get something that I like. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, amazing. I wish people had more permission to, you know, it's okay. You're in your twenties. You can still buy something that you love. And then if you move someplace and it doesn't work, you can sell it and buy something else that you love that works in the place you, um, you live. Uh, legacy furniture is another thing as we're talking about objects and special objects. Um, furniture that people have, uh, had for a long time, whether it's because it's an heirloom or because they got it two houses ago and they spent a lot of money on it. Mm -hmm. um, people can sometimes feel as if they have to hang on to something that they're not happy with. And oftentimes it doesn't have an emotional attachment. So this isn't, you know, the heirloom that you love emotionally. This is the heirloom that you're like, well, I have nothing better. <laughs> so this is what I'm using. This is, you know, the table I have and it works, you know, it holds my food up so I don't need another table. Um, but it's okay to let things move on and to replace them with things that do make you happy or that mm -hmm. fit the space well. Um, yeah. You know, if you purchased a dining table for a big room and then you move into a little room and it's super cramped, it doesn't matter if you spend a lot of money on it, even if it was custom made for your previous room, you know, letting it go to a home where it will be used and appreciated in a space that it's to scale to means that you can create a space in your own home, even if it's a smaller dining area that feels really good when you go into the dining area, rather than trying to force this thing that doesn't fit to work because you spent a lot of money on it. Right. So um, it's okay to let legacy furniture go. This moral of the story there. 
We'll be back next episode with more from Catherine on how to fix spaces that you already have that aren't working. You can check out her work in the meantime at springgreendesign.com. Thank you so much for listening. I really, I'm just very happy that people are listening to these episodes and getting something out of them. And uh, if you enjoy this podcast, I would love it if you would leave a review and a rating. That would be so helpful to me. Um, and any suggestions or questions that you might have, you could send to the House Maven at talkinghomerenovations.com. This podcast is a production of my architecture firm, Demios Architects, and we've got a lot of um, programs going now on in the virtual world that people could join from all over the world. I've got a book group on the not-so-big house that we're going to be doing over the next six, um, well, actually 12 weeks because it's meeting every other week. We also, I am meeting on Saturday mornings on Zoom with people for the Saturday morning coffee chats. And our subject for this week is, is co-housing the answer? If you go to www.demiosarchitects.com, you will, uh, you can get information about that and download the free environmentally friendly guide to renovations that I finally have finished or it's a dynamic document. So download it, check it out, see if you have any questions and um, help me make it better. Again, that's demiosarchitects.com, and I'd love to see you at one of my events. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care. <laughs>